Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Thanks for downloading this episode of Backstory on the history of youth protest and activism, which was first published in April of 2018. You can download thousands of other shows on our website, backstoryradio.org. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities... This is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the American History Podcast. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, Joanne, Ed, our colleague Nathan Connolly, and I are all historians. Each week, we explore the history of a topic that's been in the news. Farmville, Virginia is just about an hour south of our studio here in Charlottesville. And in 1951, Farmville became the epicenter of the desegregation movement in America. But this movement didn't start in a church or a lunch counter. It was started at a high school by a 16-year-old girl. Robert Russell Moton High School was built for African-American students in Prince Edward County. It was one of only 12 black high schools in rural Virginia. The school had no plumbing and was heated by wood stoves. No gymnasium, athletic field, or cafeteria. Tar paper buildings were constructed to alleviate overcrowding. And some students took classes in an abandoned school bus. Farmville High, the white high school in town, looked a heck of a lot better by comparison. For instance, they had uh, 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 a modern science lab. We did not. We had just one microscope for, what, 400 and some students? This is Reverend Samuel Williams, who was a student at Moton High. They had a uh, first aid room, teacher's lounge. We didn't have any of that. Athletically, we received their hand-me-down football clothes. Athletically, when we had to prep, play football, our coach would get together with the white coach to let us go over and practice the night before the game so that we could get accustomed to practice, to playing at night. We didn't have lights on our field. On April 23, 1951, Moton High students gathered for a morning assembly. Here's Joy Cabarrus Speaks, a Moton student at the time. We thought that it was just the principal calling us in for the usual uh, assembly, uh, something that he had to discuss. But when we got into the auditorium, all of us, and the curtain opened, there was Barbara Johns along with the others, uh, Carrie Stokes, uh, John Stokes, and others that were on the committee. Barbara Johns, that 16-year-old we mentioned earlier, had taken it upon herself to do something about Moton. This is a meeting for the students to talk about the bad conditions here at Robert R. Moton High School. I ask that all the teachers please leave before we begin. No, none of the students or the bulk of the students did not know. They were not aware of really what was transpiring in the auditorium at that time. It was done in such fashion that the principal, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, was tricked to go downtown to check on some students. He had received a call that things were disordered there. And that was how the internal committee structured things in order to get him out of the auditorium. For too long, we have quietly accepted the hand-me-downs that end up in the school. I say, no longer. There are some who tell us that we should be content with what we have, that someday in the future, things will be better. When will that day happen? Barbara Johns and a small committee of friends 
led their fellow students to walk out of Moton High and strike against the substandard conditions of the school. And they did a number of things. They picketed houses of school board members with placards that read, we want a new school or none at all, and down with tar paper shacks. They met with the school superintendent, who told them nothing could be done until they went back to class. The students refused, and parents weren't sure what to make of it. There was a lot of ambivalence, immediate ambivalence, among the parents and other relatives in the community. For instance, we went from one extreme to the other. Go back to school. You don't have what, uh, uh, you may not have what the state of the art equipment as to what white people have or in the white high school, but I didn't have that when I attended school. Go back. The day of the strike, when I went home, uh, and really that day, I was more fearful of what my grandparents were going to say than I was on any other repercussions at the time. But when I got home, my grandmother, who was a teacher also, she said she did not think it was right. Then there were others who said, no, no, you stand your ground, protest, develop dog uh, determination. And then there were some who wavered in between until they began to grasp the meaning and get a firm grip on what we were doing. The parents had been fighting for these, for a better school for a long time, and they didn't get it. So the uh, children just got ahead of them and were able to put it into motion. The Moton High students stayed on strike for nearly two weeks, but it was two years until they were able to move into a building with facilities equal to the white school. With help from the NAACP, the Moton strike resulted in a court case that became part of Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision that mandated desegregation of public schools. As for Barbara Johns, well, her life was never the same. She left Farmville shortly after the strike. Because they feared for her life, because of the threats on her life. But the thing is that anything that you do, you have to make a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice for everything that you can do that you achieve something from. We wanted so much here and had so little. Here's Barbara Johns in a rare television interview. And we had uh, talents and abilities here that weren't really being realized. And I thought that was a tragic shame. And that's uh, basically what uh, motivated me to want to see some change take place here. And what she did will show a young person, a young man, a young woman, that they can change government. Whatever they feel that's unfair or should be different, they can make a difference in this world and in this nation. All they have to do is stand for what they feel should be changed. self-involved and trend-obsessed, and they hush us into submissions when our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation, we are prepared to call BS. With students across the country organizing walkouts and demanding stricter gun laws, we're exploring the history of young people in American politics. We'll talk about how young people in the Revolution and the early Republic looked to the glorious past to forge a new future and how young people made it okay to be an independent voter in the 19th century. We'll tell the story of another student walkout in Gary, Indiana, against integration, and speak to a young Lakota woman who traveled to Standing Rock with her fellow activists. Young activists from Parkland and other communities affected by gun violence have made headlines for leading the movement for gun control. In speeches and interviews, they underline the idea that their youth is part of what makes them effective advocates in a time when adults 
had become resigned to a broken system. And that's not surprising to those of us in the 21st century. After all, many believe that protest and rebellion are part of what defines being young. But our ideas about young adulthood as a time to push back, protest, or rebel, well, that has not always been the case. Historian Glenn Wallach says that even during the American Revolution, when young college students like Alexander Hamilton and Nathan Hale played an outsized role in the fight against the British, they rarely drew attention to their age. As a matter of fact, if they did, it was only to emphasize that they were adults. Alexander Hamilton is a student at King's College, and he jumps to the defense of one of his professors and writes pamphlets and does these various things. He's not doing that speaking as a young person. And kind of the opposite of speaking as a young person, right? He's basically saying, look at me, I'm an adult, and I'm stepping into the public sphere, and I've got something to say. Yeah, interesting. Right. So during the revolution, many people, when they speak about the revolution, they think about the fact that like Hamilton, so many of the people literally fighting it in the army um, or just engaged with it, there are people who are surprisingly young. um, But the the main point, it sounds like what you're saying here is they may have vim and verve as young people, but they're they're putting themselves out in the public sphere uh, and asserting themselves as adults and that their, their identity as young people is not part of the conversation. Right. And it gets complicated because, of course, the whole language of the revolution is caught up in all this talk about fathers and mm. and sons and the king as a bad father and right. England as a bad mother, which has led some people to see it as some kind of, you know, generational rebellion. Right. Okay, so that's the revolutionary period. So what— mm-hmm. Let's shift, sort of walk ahead in time into the 19th. Right. Um, Your work suggests that things begin to really change in the 19th century. Partly because now young people are increasingly more and more on their own. Mm. Many of them go into cities and they've left the country or they're growing up in the city and they are increasingly freed from their parents and – then young people themselves start to notice each other and start to form voluntary associations, you know, the Young Men's Temperance Association, Young Men's Anti-Slavery, mm. young, young Men's Democratic Society, Young Men's Whig Convention, built around the fact that they're young. Like clubs, yeah. basically. And now, some of those are going to be the sort of classic kind of benevolent association Mm-hmm. So that, you know, sober-minded young folks can get together and not be um, drunk. Called, <laughs> <laughs> you know, temperance, benevolent yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a place where they can get together and read. And mm. a lot of these young men's associations actually become the kind of building blocks for city libraries in a lot of towns. Mm. But then also, they start to get involved in reform. They start to get involved in politics and a range of other kinds of things. And the language that they start using to talk about themselves of hearkening back to founders and fathers and how they are picking up that mantle. And as young people, they have a responsibility to move the ball forward. Mm. So, Glenn, talking about these young men in in these various groups, Mm -hmm. um, what's your sense of how they viewed their elders at that point? Well, I think it's interesting because they very much wrapped themselves in the mantle of the revolution. And in the case of this, a couple of groups of African-American young men in New York City, they wrapped themselves in the mantle of particular African-American founders, early leaders in education in New York and other community leaders. And they say, we are following in their footsteps Mm. to move our, you know, society forward. Hmm. The revolution and, and, and the passing of the founders, because of course, as you well know, by the 1830s, all of the actual founders are gone. And 
that becomes a sort of important moment for these young men's organizations who say, you know, the founders are gone. Now it's up to us. Mm. And so they are sort of very much sort of talking about themselves in that kind of way. Modeling themselves after adults of the past. Yeah. Although, I, yeah, I mean, or saying the, in that tradition, we are now doing something new and different and important. So it's not, we are, it's not we are simply repeating them, but they are the inspiration for us to move forward. Glenn Wallach is author of Obedient Sons, the Discourse of Youth and Generations in American Culture, 1630 to 1860. Earlier in the show, we heard from Reverend Samuel Williams and Joy Cabrera Speaks. That interview came from an episode about the Moton Strike produced by With Good Reason, a radio show based here at Virginia Humanities. You can find that episode on our website, backstoryradio.org. Special thanks to Lacey Ward Jr. and to Jolie Milner, who played Barbara Johns. You can visit the Moton Museum in Farmville. If you are struggling to get a good night's sleep, you have to try a purple mattress. Now, the purple mattress will probably feel different than anything you've experienced before because it uses a brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. The purple material feels very unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. Try Purple's 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. Purple offers free shipping and returns, and its mattresses are backed by a 10-year warranty. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text BACKSTORY to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text BACKSTORY to 84888. That's B-A-C-K-S-T-O-R-Y to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. If you go into any campaign office today, you'll see an army of college students making phone calls and stuffing envelopes. But we shouldn't think of this as just a modern phenomenon. Yeah, it's funny. We associate young people with the baby boomers or the modern era, but young people have always played a role in politics because American democracy has always needed boots on the ground. It's always needed labor and free labor and energetic labor especially. So often young people play a key role because they're willing to do the, the hard, dirty work of getting people to go out and vote. This is John Grinspan, curator of political history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Since the mid-19th century, most white men have been able to vote in the United States, and political parties have valued young men in particular for their energy and for their impressionability. Abe Lincoln said, you go out and recruit the shrewd wild boys just under age, that you want them before they can participate because you don't really want them making up their mind in an election. You want them committed Democrats or Republicans right, right. for a decade before. And generally, the best predictor of how a young man would vote would be how his father voted, right? Absolutely. This yeah. is partisanship is tied up with family identity, with region, with race, with class. It's people, most people inherit their party identities. And then once they voted for that first time, 95% vote for the same party in presidential elections over decades. So if a father convinces a son to vote a certain way, or if a sister convinces her brother to vote a certain way, they're often locked into that partisanship for life. But in the 19th century, it wasn't just family expectations that convinced young men to remain true to a party. Politics was public, and political parties tended to throw the biggest social parties in town. Uh, a rally in a small town might be the largest gathering a person ever sees. It would usually happen at 11 p.m. or midnight, and it would involve large groups of young men organized into political clubs, like maybe 100 people in a club, with lit torches marching down the street. There would be, you know, refreshments from ranging from, you know, whiskey and beer to roast ox or roast hog. 
Uh, there would be people speechifying on the sidelines, what they called boy orators at the time, who were as young as 12, but maybe in their early, early 20s, on uh, soapboxes, giving speeches about the issues or about the parties. And the spectators would often be older people who were kind of watching young people engage in politics. Young people benefited from being politically active, but their views didn't have much influence on the policies of the parties they joined. The parties don't care all that much about their beliefs on the issues. The, the, <laughs> you know, the, the elites who are running these parties and making yeah. the nominations, they, they want a political party run by 60-year-olds, but manned on the ground and fueled by 21-year-olds. Uh, this is still a hierarch- hierarchical culture where young people are expected to follow the lead often of adults or older people. That obedience, however, didn't last. After the Civil War, young people began to question party leadership and the direction of their country. There's always new generations of young people coming, and they are increasingly hostile to a political system that seems stuck in the Civil War era. That right. they, look at the, they look at this generation that kind of made their names and fought their battles during the Civil War, who dominate the political system and also dominate much of the economic system as stuck in the past. And they... This is an era when there's a real excitement for finding dinosaur bones, and they start to compare these parties <laughs> to, to fossils. And there's a great quote where they say, young people have no more interest in the issues in their parents than they do in the wars of extinct monsters whose bones are gathered in museums. That they, th- there's a sense that the political system has stuck, and it's not paying attention to the needs and demands of young people in the 1870s or 1880s. It's arguing about 1861 over and over and over again. And they're still electing veterans in, at the beginning of the 20th century, right? McKinley, I guess, is the, the last one. I don't know. Yes, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, and veterans are running on what they did in it, the, during the Battle of Antietam in the 1890s, you know? And yeah. if, you're, if you're a 21-year-old voter in the 1890s, you weren't alive during Antietam. It doesn't, it doesn't mean as much to you. Right. So what happens to the parties when young people begin to not pay as much attention? Well, they freak out. They... Um, <laughs> Especially the Republican Party in the North, which had seen itself as the party of the young, is kind of a defining identity. When young people start to dabble with voting for the Democrats or, or making up their mind in each election, first they scold young people and tell them they don't know what they're talking about. And then they they try to insist that they're the party of the independents and all good independents vote Republican. So they, <laughs> they, they try to use the rhetoric of independence without actually following through on it. But over the, the last decade or two of the 19th century, there starts to be a real movement for genuine political independence, that new generations of young people who don't care about their father's issues or their mother's issues are making up their minds as elections come, as looking at both parties and, and choosing which um, which candidate, which party they'd like to support. And this is really revolutionary, even more so than the emergence of third parties. Hmm. The idea of being a genuine independent really changes American politics. And it comes from a young generation that's hostile to these these kind of ossified, stuck old parties. The idea becomes that if you're a man enough, you'll make up your own mind, rather, whereas before, if you were man enough, you'd declare your loyalty to a party no matter what, right? Absolutely. And it is tied to masculinity again, that independents are seen as wishy-washy and effeminate and not real men for most of the 19th century. And then at some point in the 1890s, the really strong, stable person looks at both parties and chooses their own, based on their own conscience, as opposed to following how their father voted or how their grandfather voted. Now, this must have been especially tricky for African-American voters, right, for whom the Republican Party was really their only refuge. How would they negotiate this? Yeah, African-Americans are in a real bind. I mean, in addition to the fact that there are there are large numbers of people in the South trying to completely disenfranchise them, and, and in the North, too, the party that has historically supported black people, the, the Republican Party, isn't often giving them much in exchange. Right. One great quote I love yep. from a, a reverend in, in Philadelphia who says, the Philadelphia's African-American community, it's time you were getting more for your political services. With all your speaking, organizing, parading in the streets, ballyhooing, holding mass meetings, voting, and sometimes fighting, what do you get? That's a fundamental question. What do you get for being a good Republican for, for 30 years? And what do you get if you're a woman in all this? Uh, the decades march by and still women are not allowed to vote. Do they become disenchanted or does this opening of independentism create a space for them? 
It absolutely does. One of the one of the really interesting things is the way women drive the push for independent voting and the way being distant from the two parties, being denied the right to vote, actually allows women and in to be really consequential and influential going into the 20th century and the progressive era. That men are most men are trapped within this political system and they have biases for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and their same old fights going back to when they were children. Because women were denied the right to vote, they tend to think more broadly about political reform and change. And so they might be rethinking social services for for poor people or how to protect child laborers or these, these kind of bigger issues that the parties just have not managed to address. And also, as there's a movement for women's suffrage kind of building over the 1890s and 1900s, they really cleverly play the independent approach to see which party will be more supportive uh-huh. to them. That uh-huh. They learn that they can't rely on any one party ever. And so in election and election, state by state, they, they manage to kind of court both parties and say, well, who's going to support us more? Interesting. Despite all the courting by the by the parties, people begin turning away from voting after 1900. I think this is something that really surprises people who sort of believe that American history keeps getting better and better, is that sometime uh, around the beginning of the 20th century, people decided, yeah, this two-party system's not really doing much for me. But were young people a part of that that transformation? I'd say young people are the driving force huh. behind it. That mm. There's large political changes going on, but one of the key ones is that as people, especially young people, break from this really diehard partisanship, they don't see as much reason to go turn out and vote. And and so independent voting is much better for making up one's mind each election and thinking through the issues. But in terms of that big mass participation in those public events and those high turnouts, partisanship was really working well. And as they they break up this kind of partisan culture and support independence, and also as they break up the idea that politics should be public and begin to support the idea that it's a private matter of individual conscience, not necessarily to be discussed at the dinner table, but to be decided behind a voting curtain, turnouts start to fall. And there's less of a kind of sense of a national public campaign each election that that it's too excitable, too silly, too often too working class, too um, b- driven by what they called nonsense at the time, um, and too, too drunk. Those people who feel that the political system isn't reflecting the best values for America deliberately make an effort to change political behavior. That more than the issues, more than any ideological question, they say they want to change how Americans engage democracy. And so over the 1880s and over the 1890s, they really construct a new way of engaging in politics that is much more private than public, much more independent than partisan, and much more restrained than passionate. More reading than talking. They they actually say more more thinking, less shouting. Yeah. But at the same time, it means shutting down those big demonstrations, shutting down the barbecues, shuttering the saloons, not buying fireworks for for your marchers, um, and it really it does end up almost killing this kind of folk culture that Americans had created over the 19th century. So that by the early 20th century, these big mass parades and engagements really don't exist in politics the way they used to. So what parallels do you see today uh, between sort of the resurgence of uh, young people in the political sphere in, in this earlier era? Well, th- there are a few things. And obviously, it's a very different time and things things are very different. The first is that political engagement today is fairly good or at least improving over how it had been in much of the 20th century for young people. That we tend to kind of tut-tut and shake our fingers, but Millennials are voting at higher rates than baby boomers or Gen Xers did. And so it it's easy to blame the young, but I, I do think there's, there's good news there. Um, I think in terms of the mobilization around gun violence and, and the, the students at Parkland, one of the things that I found interesting looking at young people in the Gilded Age is that a generation of young people who thought their political system wasn't working for them and were kind of raised to believe that it was corrupt and, and vulgar was actually much more motivated to make change than a generation raised to think that their political system was was holy and perfect and huh. untouchable. So maybe there's an argument to be made that these 17-year-olds who have basically believed that democracy has been broken to some degree their whole life – they might be more engaged and, and more willing to um, go after sacred cows or, or rethink things than, than a generation in the 20th century who had a, a, like a sunnier sense of American democracy.
John Grinspan is the curator of political history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. He's the author of The Virgin Vote, How Young Americans Made Democracy Social, Politics Personal, and Voting Popular in the 19th Century. Well, Joanne, Ed, we're talking about youth getting involved in politics, a lot of social protest, and kind of curious to hear when you came of age politically and whether you ever protested anything. Well, I actually have a really distinct memory of that, and that's because it was my first semester at college. But um, it was 1980. And uh, Reagan was on a like a helicopter tour around California uh, during that presidential campaign. And he came to my college and they actually said in our classes, because it was a big deal, that we could skip class if we wanted to, to go and see this rally. So I went to this rally with no expectation of any kind. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never – I don't even think I'd been tuned in ever on the news to anything like this. And uh, I actually – looked it up before today's conversation so that I would know I was accurate. There were se- <laughs> several like thousand there, people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, all, I well, you'll see what I do remember about it. I don't remember how many people were there, but apparently there were several thousand. And there were several hundred of them were actually heckling Reagan. And I do remember he lost his cool and yelled at us, you kids, you know, sort of a moment that I remember thinking, wow, I didn't expect to see that. But the thing that struck me and that stayed with me was that before he came on stage to speak, there were, was like a warm-up band, like singers. And they, they were singing Christian songs. They were singing Jesus songs. And I'm Jewish. And I stood in the audience and I felt like I had just been told to go away. Hmm. I felt like, you know, suddenly I was not, although no one did anything, but it was like, wow, I was just exclusively like cut off from this. I, they didn't include me. And was in this a house. Christian college perchance? No, nope, no, no, it was not. Uh, it was Pomona College, one of the Claremont colleges. Did that translate um, so, into anything, Joanne? Did you take that sensibility and. I don't know, join Hillel? It it did not transfer, I think, into a Jewish sensibility explicitly. It did transfer into a, um, I'm more involved in this political process than I knew I was before. You know, I, like I, I'm, I was with a group of students. They were engaged in one way or another. They were either cheering or heckling. And then I was sort of like thrown in the middle of it because I couldn't avoid it because it felt like a personal statement. So suddenly I, it was like I gained a, a political awareness that I honestly don't think I'd had before that moment. Joanne, I'm going to just go ahead and share my political coming of age because – and and uh, – Ed can attest to this. This was not rehearsed in advance. It also has to do with being Jewish. Hmm. And I grew up in South Florida where uh, Jews were, of course, a minority, but a, a strong presence in the community. And I was shipped away to a fancy prep school in New England. And I had never been particularly religious, but we were required to go to, quote, church, uh, and Jewish kids on Sunday would attend, quote, synagogue in the basement underneath the church. Hmm. And I started feeling resentful, and that really fed uh, my Jewish identity. It's, huh. it's probably the only three years of my life <laughs> where <laughs> I really strongly identified not just religiously and culturally with being Jewish, but politically. Mm. And here is my first political act. I played French horn, and I played in the brass quintet at the school. And of course, we'd be called on to play at the real church upstairs. And my first political act, something that the historian Robin Kelly would label infrapolitics, <laughs> my first political act 
is intentionally playing out of tune wow. during those church services. Oh, wow. wow. There it is. I hope the statute of limitations is passed. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Now, many would say, Brian, I heard your French horn playing. You always played out of tune. But I did that uh-huh. very intentionally. Wow. I went on to do a lot of other political things. But huh. I was thinking about this, and that really was my first explicit political act. How old were you, Brian, when that happened? I think I was 16 when I went there, and I probably didn't have the courage to do that till I was about 17 years old, hmm. so, something in that hmm. vicinity. Ed, we haven't heard from you. Well, that's because they heard from me a lot back in the 60s when I was in high school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow, what a segue. Yeah, but it's also just complete bluster because, you know, so, you know, I'm in East Tennessee, which is not really a hotbed of student protest, <laughs> but... I had watched television throughout, you know, my adolescence, and you got the clear sense. I felt a part of my generation, you know, of feeling uh, that our job was to be a part of a counterculture, and I, I lived and breathed the music. But I decided that a more efficacious way to protest would actually to be write op-eds for a local newspaper. Wow. And so wow. I actually Did was— Did you know this about him, Joanne? I knew nothing about I him. I didn't know well, it either. Well, I was a columnist for a short while for the Bristol Herald Courier when I was a junior in high school and therefore, what, 16 years old. So I wrote two articles that I remember, both of which really got me in trouble pretty quickly. Uh, One, I wondered if the local Christian churches were doing all that they could to reach out to young people. So three for three with religion. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, really? And, and, but I was writing sort of from within the tradition yep. and saying, you know, when there's so much going on in our culture, uh, churches, to fulfill their Christian purpose, needed to be more engaged. Uh, people were not happy with this, including my parents, uh, mm. because it was seen mm. as an attack on established religion. So the next article that I wrote was, and I'm still kind of embarrassed by it, an attack, actually a parody of the two guidance counselors at our school, one male, one female. And the point was that you kind of had a bad choice. You could either get somebody who was either going to give you a kind of you know, blandly reassuring and maybe religious message and somebody else who was going to kind of make fun of you, right? And so I portrayed the kind of the dilemma, right, of the high school kids. The Sol- choice. Exactly, of Sullivan Central, <laughs> right? And kind of mm. gently made fun of them. But what gave it a real edge was a cartoon was produced that portrayed one the woman as an angel and the man as a bear. And you know, these poor people are sitting there doing their jobs, and there's a cartoon in the local newspaper in front of all these adults. Mm-hmm. And these people have never done anything to me, but it was like, what could I do to be kind of cheeky? You know, what could I do to be kind of countercultural in my very narrow world? And, you know, the only pieces of the establishment that I could see were Sunday school and the guy's exactly. castles, right? Exactly. So it, I was hardly a radical. But if you think about things that, in retrospect, seem pretty high risk for a 16-year-old kid to be out doing, or stupid would be another way of Well, putting. except, <laughs> Joanne, I want you to be the judge here, but I, I, have a, I have a theory, which is that by the time Ed and I were in college— my guess is Ed was involved in protests. I actually don't know. I was involved in lots of protests, primarily against the Vietnam War. And I and the thousands of people with me, we were arguing against the establishment. We thought that we were unconventional. We were taking mm-hmm. a chance. But in fact, I was doing exactly what all of my friends were doing, and I I it's not that I didn't believe in those causes, but when I think back on it, it was the norm. It was the easy thing to do. I think of right. the kids who were in Young Americans for Freedom. They were conservative. They were Republican. I can't remember any of their names specifically. I re- literally remember faces. And in retrospect, those kids, right or wrong politically, were the courageous ones. They were the ones at a fancy university college, like the kind that all three of us went to. They were the ones that were actually, you know, pushing against the grain. 
I, I will say I've remained very involved in politics, but I've grown a great deal, I hope, in empathy for people who feel passionately differently than I do and developed a real curiosity about why it is they feel that way. So, so Brian, what you're kind of saying, it sounds to me, uh, is that empathy is kind of the counterforce to disillusionment when it comes to protest. That, that when, even when you're disillusioned, you, you come away with something from protest and, and that that matter, that being empathetic with others in the world is something powerful. We often associate youth movements with progressive politics, but our next story shows that's not always the case. Gary, Indiana, was once home to a thriving steel industry. The pull of jobs there created a diverse population in the early 20th century, including Eastern European immigrants and African Americans. But simmering tensions between these white and black communities exploded on September 18, 1945. That day, hundreds of students walked out of Frable High. The strikers were white. The object of their protest? Their African-American classmates. Producer Nina Ernest has the story. According to local reports, the Frable strike began after a fight broke out between black and white students at a football game. But racial tensions in Gary had been brewing for quite some time. Frable was located in Gary's central district, the only integrated neighborhood in a very segregated city. As a result, Frable was its only integrated school. Historian Ronald Cohen says that this was a point of contention for Frable's white student body. These were uh, ethnic white students, uh, Eastern European background, and they felt that they were being discriminated against, that the richer white kids in Gary went to all white schools, but they were picked on because they were uh, of ethnic ancestry. The more overt discrimination, however, was within Frable itself. When the school was built, it was really supposed to be this melting pot, this uh, showcase integrated school. This is Casey Pfeiffer of the Indiana Historical Bureau. But the school was internally segregated. So African-American students, though they, you know, walked the same halls as white students there, they could not attend the same classes um, or participate in many of the same extracurricular activities. Black students would be on the sports teams, which were integrated, but otherwise uh, they had a separate prom for the black students from the white students. They had two swimming pools in the building, uh, but the swimming was segregated, so black students only swam on Friday before they cleaned the pool. Despite this inequality, it was the white students who decided to strike and air their grievances in 1945. As more and more black Southerners moved to Gary for wartime employment and more black students enrolled at Frable, the situation reached a tipping point. The white students, led by a boy named Leonard Lavenda, presented the school board with a few demands. What they wanted was that the school system remove all of the black students from Frable and put them in other schools. 
Students also wanted to oust Principal Richard Newsom, who they believed was giving preferential treatment to African-American students. And lastly, that the Gary School Board stopped treating its students like guinea pigs in racial integration experiments. The student walkout elicited strong reactions in Gary and beyond. The working-class white community and many of their parents backed the youth. But African Americans, about a fifth of Gary's population at that time, condemned them. A black newspaper called the Indianapolis Recorder reported that the African American students at Frable were deeply hurt and insulted by their classmates' attitudes. It's important to understand that this comes at just after World War II ends, which was the war fought for freedom, democracy, toleration, and so forth. You know, here we were fighting against Hitlerism, Nazism, fascism abroad, and, you know, you come home to face inequality, race hatred um, here at home. This was not lost on the people of Gary. One journalist remarked, A Negro student hurrying to his class in an all-but-deserted Frabel High last week during the hate strike of white students found time to turn and observe. My brother was killed overseas just six months ago, fighting for this school and all the other fascists here. The school board refused to remove black students from Fable. Instead, its members promised to investigate the principal and put him on leave. The strikers returned to school in an uneasy truce. But Newsom was soon reinstated, and the white students walked out yet again on October 23rd. This time, they had a new demand. So... Interestingly enough, the second time, they basically say, you know, if we're going to be integrated, all schools in Gary should be integrated. Um, It doesn't make sense to have one and not the other. Pfeiffer and Cohen say this isn't as much of an about-face as it seems. This goes back to the point um, from their initial strike when they said they no longer wanted to be guinea pigs. Right. They said, you're picking on us because we're working class ethnics, and that's not fair. So integrate the whole city. By this point, the Frable heat strikes had attracted national attention. So much so that one of the biggest stars of the 20th century made a special stop in the troubled city. Leaden skies today had a silver lining, and damp cold winds blew heart-stirring melodies for thousands of teenage devotees of the King of Swoon, who came by plane this morning from New York City to croon Gary Bobby Soxers and their boyfriends into a democratic attitude on the race relations problem. Frank Sinatra was the most popular performer in the country, by far. And he was uh, very liberal politically, and uh, he believed strongly that the strike was wrong. Sinatra chatted with Frable students and, of course, performed for the town. The girl strikers were supposed to boycott. They said they're not going to go to hear Frank. But some of them snuck in. They couldn't miss a free Frank Sinatra concert. Sinatra warned the students about the Nazi technique of divide and conquer. And requested the strikers to return to school as a favor, and I shall be grateful to you. Now that didn't go over too well. He also met privately with Leonard Lavenda, the white student leader. Sinatra offered him a trip to New York to talk things through. Lavenda told the crooner that he couldn't be bought. Sinatra's visit was extraordinary, but it didn't accomplish very much. Life magazine, which covered the event, said Frankie was, quote, deeply earnest at the high school meeting. First he sang some songs. Then he made some vague references to the American way of life and the hot dog. When it was all over, Frankie had failed. The strike was still on. But the walkouts didn't last for much longer. The strikers had a powerful enemy. The uh, elite in Gary, which was the daily newspaper, the Post-Tribune, the business community, the leadership from U.S. Steel, they were all very opposed to the strike. There were a few reasons for this. It was disruptive and there were fears of violence. For many residents, it was shameful. But it was also an image problem, especially in the wake of World War II. The Gary Post-Tribune went so far as to call out the strikers' families for their motives. 
the article really makes it clear and says that fundamentally this is not a school problem. It is developed out of the changing population in the Frable area. As a result of this influx of Negro families, some white property owners feel their homes and churches have depreciated in value. So it really goes, you know, this was a larger issue than, you know, what's happening in the schools. Um, Again, really underscoring the racial tension that was prevalent in the area and not just in Gary, but in the north at this time. With the weight of public pressure, the school board cracked down on the student protesters. If you are over 16, you face expulsion. If you're under 16, your parents face legal action. They continue to press and press and press, and eventually the the students do back down. The white community did not back them up, and so they couldn't win. The white students went back to school by mid-November, almost two months after they first walked out. The irony is that what is remembered as a hate strike had a positive outcome, at least on paper. In August 1946, the school board passed an anti-discrimination order that effectively integrated the school system. You want to think that it is a positive thing and how great the story would be if the students were going on strike because initially they wanted all schools to be integrated and they were protesting segregation. But that's really not um, what that story was, you know. And again, it goes back to why this was called a hate strike. It was unfortunate and it is contradictory to what I think many of us think of in terms of um, you know, student activism. At the same time, you know, these students were taking a stand for something that they believed in, um, no matter how hard, you know, it might be for some of us to believe that that was happening at the time. Leonard Lavenda died in 1995. His brother told a local reporter that Leonard believed that schools should be integrated and, quote, through his efforts and those of other students, eventually all schools in Gary were. Now, that's all... uh, great when you dig deeper, you know, segregation and discrimination is continuing to happen. As hard as the city's white elite fought against the student hate strike, they didn't look at their own policies. They made few efforts to integrate the city as a whole. And without integrated neighborhoods, it's hard to have integrated schools. The white elite and establishment in Gary is okay in terms of having Frable, again, as this showcase integrated example. But really, when you look at the community, um, no one's really pushing the envelope too far to make sure that integration does happen. There's an unexpected coda to this story. Gary remained a segregated city. But in the decades that followed, Frable High School became much more to its alumni than the site of a hate strike. Indiana State Representative Vernon Smith graduated from Frable in 1962. He says that less than 20 years after the walkout, conditions for Black students had improved astronomically. I didn't even think about segregation in high school. I mean, I I thought about it when I got outside of those walls. There were certain sections of the city that we couldn't live in. There were certain sections of the city we couldn't be in after it got dark. So that was part of Gary's history. It it was segregated. But Frable, he says, was a haven from that discrimination. The school board closed the school in 1977, despite protests, and the building was torn down in 2005. Today, it's a park. Smith and his fellow alumni still reunite every year to celebrate their time at the school. He also worked with the state and Casey Pfeiffer's office to ensure the location be remembered as a historical site. I firmly believe if you don't tell your history and people don't know your history, that you're destined for for it to repeat itself. And so we want the young people to know what happened there and and not just see it as a park. And I can genuinely say that I love Frable. So I'm going to do all I can to keep alive the memory and, and the worth of anything that I love. So uh, the faithful spirit lives. Nina Ernest is one of our producers. Ronald Cohen, Casey Pfeiffer, and Vernon Smith helped her tell that story. Cohen is Professor Emeritus of History at Indiana University Northwest. Pfeiffer is a historian at the Indiana Historical Bureau. And Smith is a state representative of the Indiana legislature.
We're going to turn now from Gary, Indiana, to the city next door. Chicago is the hometown of Naomi Harvey-Turner, a Lakota activist and co-president of Shy Nations, a council for Native youth in the city. And Shy is for Chicago, but it's also, um, I believe in Ojibwe, it means many for, you know, all the different tribal affiliations of members um, within the youth group. And we started off just trying to make a safe space for youth to talk um, because there is a lot of issues with people not listening to the youth, to us. But members also spent a lot of time traveling around Chicago and the Midwest, making connections with other Native youth councils, running presentations on Native culture, and marching in climate change protests. Many of these activists were in high school. It was definitely hard. I would be missing for a week or two um, because I was in New York or I was in D.C. or some other um, res. And my teachers were definitely supportive of me, but I would come back with a workload. Um, Sometimes it's hard. I've had people whisper rude comments of, you know, why are you doing all this? It doesn't matter. And for those people, um, I realized that a lot of the kids that I went to school with in high school um, were from the hood or from the projects. So what they saw was that, you know, no matter how they try, how much they tried, nothing would change. I definitely understand that. You know, definitely things haven't always changed for the better, but I think that, you know, you should fight anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, you ended up at a protest in Standing Rock North Dakota. Yeah. What happened was that Dapple, the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, wanted to build an oil pipeline originally in Bismarck, where their population is majority white. And they decided that it was too much of a hazard to build it there. So they decided that they're going to build it on um, an Indian reservation. Standing Rock Reservation. A lot of these pipelines, they break. And when they break, um, the oil would go into the water. And, you know, harming the water would also harm indigenous people because, you know, water is life. Many Wachoni, it's very important to our traditions. And so when you poison the water, you poison the land, you poison the animals, you poison the plants. And so people are already struggling on these reservations to live Poisoning the water would practically kill them. When you went there as part of your youth council, were you aware that uh, the protests, in many ways, was started by young people at Standing Rock? Yeah, I was definitely aware. We were camping with the youth, and it felt really good to, you know, be surrounded by youth, um, seeing them build teepees, and they helped us build our tent and created a stove for us and we're you know sitting around the fire you know talking to each other we had moments where we were making food for each other you know building stuff with each other and I I think that you know was very important because it it showed how powerful youth are you know how much we can actually do if we had that kind of support from people you know people that actually see our, you know, our power and our potential and helped um, help educate us um, and help us even be aware of, you know, our power and our potential. And what was your actual experience of the protests themselves? Was it what you expected? I think it was and it wasn't what I expected. So definitely on the media, it showed very intense fights between the water protectors and the dapple people showing, you know, water guns and rubber bullets and stuff like that. But when I was there, it was safe. I mean, there was definitely some tense moments. I was, you know, down on the front lines and you could see dapple security up on the hill and There were um, water protectors um, in the river, you know, standing with their hands up. I also remember at night, you know, floodlights, you know, there was no complete darkness that, you know, the lights were always on you and there were always helicopters in the sky. 
So it was even brighter than Chicago out there in the middle of North Dakota. Yes, definitely. It was a lot brighter. I mean, Chicago has its lights, but the way that those floodlights were positioned, it was like shining, you know, right on you. They're all actually there to remind us that they're watching us, you know, that they're still there. So there's a lot of mental warfare going on, I would say. And another interesting thing that I experienced is that there wasn't really a place for us to wash up. And so we went to the hotel on the reservation and actually got kicked out. Um, and which I thought was very interesting because, you know, we're here, you know, fighting for the people on the reservation, you know, fighting for the very water that, you know, that hotel is using. So you, you really experienced some of the cross pressures that anybody who joins a protest experiences, I think. How long were you there altogether? Um, just a week. Uh-huh. How did the experience change you? Um, how did it change me? If it did I at think, all. I mean, it definitely did. It made me... In Chicago, I have experienced, you know, racism, discrimination. And then, you know, I've also, I guess, read about it too, you know, you know studying that as an activist and just a scholar, but there's a certain thing you just, you know, you can't know until you experience it. Seeing the way that people have to live on the reservation, you know, the fact that the water protectors, you know, made a point, you know, to every single person in that camp that we are not getting violent. This is about praying. This is a sacred space. And they went up to the front lines, you know, with their hands up, just praying. And there are people on the other side, you know, seeing their very existence as something dangerous, as a threat now. You said that you would be willing to die for the cause. That's quite an extraordinary thing for an 18-year-old even to have to think, let alone say. Why would you be willing to die for the cause? Um, I mean, one aspect is that, you know, definitely in Chicago and many big cities, you see people die for no reason. And so I didn't want to get hit by a car. I didn't want to get, you know, shot by a stray bullet. But also that, once again, that, you know, people see my very existence as a threat. And so, you know, I decided that if, you know, if one day I have a daughter or a son and if my death, let them be able to, you know, pray and live. And, you know, my ancestors, you know, died and fought for my very existence and for my ability to practice my culture. So, you know, why not do the same for my own descendants? Naomi Harvey-Turner is co-president of Shy Nations Youth Council and a student at DePaul University in Chicago. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spagna, Aaron Teeling, Korean Thomas, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks this week to With Good Reason. And as always, the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, 
the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.